university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the deconstruction workers. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for downloading today's episode of The Deconstruction Workers. Due to the nature of the topic this week, we are going to be getting into a little bit of the birds and the bees kind of stuff. Fair warning, if you are listening with children, you might need to make a parenting decision today. Thanks. And now, on to the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And joining me today on the line is Marley Williford. Marley is a longtime friend of the podcast, uh, a veteran deconstruction worker out at Bowling Green State University. And today we are talking about witches, witchcraft and witches in popular culture, which seems like a fun thing to talk about. I was going to save this conversation until Halloween, but I've got another thing brewing for Halloween, no (laughs) pun intended. So (laughs) welcome to the show, Marley. Thanks, Dr. Bell, for having me. I will confess that while I am pretty well versed in popular culture depictions of witches, I don't really know a whole lot about witchcraft and witches in general. So what I thought I would do is maybe start off with some traditional depictions of witches and have you sort of talk through those a little bit and then, I don't know, see where we go. Yeah, we can do that. Cool. Traditionally, as I understand it, when we encounter witches in popular culture, They are usually on the villain side of things. Mm -hmm. We typically get these really powerful and evil witches. Everything from the Ice Queen in Narnia to the Wicked Witch of the West or Roald Dahl's The Witches, the evil queen in Snow White, even going all the way back to folklore and the Baba Yaga and those kinds of sort of old world Russian witches. So I think when I think of witches popular culturally, I think of Witch Hazel, the the Looney Tunes witch, right? Green skin and the cackle and the whole shebang. The Witch of the West type archetype, the green face and the sort of haggish, large, pimply, bumpy nose and that sort of thing. It's like very classic depiction of the witch. My guess is those are not the witches you came here to talk about. Not exclusively, no, because witches in 2019 look very different than the classical villain depiction of the witch. Witches are kind of a unique horror villain in that arguably they are more gendered than any other horror classic monster. Zombies aren't gendered in the same way. Vampires, maybe, they have this Victorian masculinity, but there are also just as many lady vampires in in pop culture. But witches are very specifically gendered female. There's like a very feminine horror about them. I would agree. I would think the corollary would be werewolves. Werewolves, yeah. yeah. Werewolves are very masculine all the time. 
Yeah, and usually werewolves are used to tell the same kinds of stories about young boys that witches are to tell stories about young girls. You know, they're kind of tied to puberty, coming-of-age narratives, those kinds of stories where there's a physical change in the kid. And witches have a lot of imagery that's really associated with female puberty and menstruation, body horror stuff. Interestingly, both of them sort of tied to cycles of the moon in their own way. Yeah. Boys manifesting in this uncontrollable physicality. Mm -hmm. Girls manifesting in this, what do I want to say, this sort of psychic manipulation. Yeah, a discovery of power. That's exactly what it is. That witches are sort of this... And I think this is true of both classic depictions of witches and the more contemporary depictions of witches that we're going to talk about in a little bit, is that witches are about female power in a very specific kind of way. And how scary it is that when women come of age and come into their sexual power, that they get this sort of psychic, scary manipulative power that's very sexual in nature and come together mm-hmm. that's a vital part of the witchcraft it specifically makes sisterhood a scary thing groups of women are scary because they're together the coven yeah the coven right <laughs> when male children come into their physical power they are loners werewolves usually operate alone by themselves under the cover of dark doing scary physical things when women come of age they come together to magnify their ability to psychically manipulate what is most frightening for women is the lone man who can hurt you a lone woman is not scary to men what is scary for men is the group of women who can come together to hurt you as a group in a coven and exclusively in groups of purely women. So there is sort of a historical track record of witches that we can follow back that contemporary depictions of witches in pop culture have followed from. So if you go back to medieval Europe, early colonial American history as well. You get the witch trials, you get witch hunts, which were quite literally a a genocide of a specific type of woman. And this woman was typically a healer of some kind. She had a traditional knowledge of healing. You know, often she was a midwife and she would deliver babies. You know, she was sort of the healer in the community. And she was almost always single or widowed, older, not a woman who's reproducing, not someone who's sexually available to men, and is unmarried. So this this idea that an unmarried woman is a danger to our society is kind of why witches were targeted back during the, the witch trials. There's a famous medieval witch hunting guide that was written by religious leaders at the time called the Malleus Maleficarum which is translates roughly to hammer of witches. And it's a very detailed guide of how to identify witches in your community and the best way to eliminate them, either by converting them to Christianity or by killing them publicly. So you can see all the way back, that is where we get like the earliest idea of what a witch is. And those ideas carry all the way through popular culture 600 years later. Oh, even before that, though, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of converting them to Christianity, because for a lot of human history, 
particularly of the last 2,000 years, witches are often thought of as these pagans who are doing the devil's work. Right. And, I mean, there are records of witches in the Bible itself. The first book of Samuel uh, is the story of King Saul, and he seeks out the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel to help him defeat the Philistines. And I mean, that was written almost 900 years before the current era, about 900 and something BCE, right? Right. The Old Testament in Exodus says, you know, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there is this direct connection between Christian fear of paganism and the hunting of witches, post-biblical. And I think it has a lot to do with Christianity being, by all accounts, a patriarchal institution. Absolutely. And I think it has a lot to do with magic. And that sounds like, duh, obviously. But the kind of magic that witches were performing was what was really just holistic medicine and delivering babies, stuff that should be miracles, stuff that only God should be able to do, right? And so there's sort of this dual fear of the power of the witch, that she has knowledge that other people can't access, and she can't be controlled under a patriarchal institution because she's not sexual. She's, you know, too old or whatever to be a sexual person, to be a viable wife. And she's not married. So she's she's not controlled by any existing patriarchal institution. And she is valuable to her community. So there's a lot of different ways that a patriarchal institution just, it can't suffer witches. They, they just screw everything up because they're inherently women with power. Especially if you keep going back. We could keep going back all the way to Circe in Greek mythology and Medea, yeah. and those are, they're not the old hag witch, they're the sort of young, sexy, enchantress kinds of witches who right. will lure good men away from their tasks or their mm-hmm. the things they're supposed to be doing. It manifests itself in our classic Madonna horror complex. Yeah. Either the witch is this old crone who is undesirable as a mate, or the witch is this young, beautiful enchantress who just wants to manipulate you. And she's going to tempt you into evil, and she's going to lure you away from your virginal, perfect version wife that you're supposed to end up with. That's where you kind of get into the pop culture stuff, is because a witch can take on either the form of the hag or the femme fatale. We have a third category of witches where witches often fall in pop culture, which is the teen witch, which goes back to what I was saying about coming of age narratives and the period metaphor where girls are coming into their sexual power and becoming women. You see a lot of teen witches. You get teen witch, which was a movie in the 1980s. You get the craft, you get Sabrina, the teenage witch. To an extent, you get Willow and Tara, who are, by all definitions, teen witches on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Vampire Diaries. There's a witch on that. Yeah, I haven't seen Vampire Diaries. Sabrina and Tabitha. Uh, Not Sabrina, uh, Samantha and Tabitha. Going back to Bewitched. Right. The mother and daughter witch coven, so to speak. And then all of the fears around the crucible. That's Mm -hmm. all these teenage girls accusing each other of being witches. Right. And I think that... 
the reason that the teen witch resonates because you ask nearly any American girl and she will tell you that she went through a witch phase when she was a teenager or when she was a kid because the teen witch archetype really resonates with with young girls I think because witches occupy this very liminal transitive state you know they don't really belong to either world especially teen witches which makes sense because teens don't really belong to either world they're not children they're not adults so they're kind of navigating that liminal space of entering adulthood and so I think that a lot of girls go through this obsession with teen witches because it feels like this is what it's supposed to be I'm supposed to be getting my power and I'm supposed to be learning who I am and so when you have witches as the heroes that's more the story than the witch is scary seductress or the witch is evil it's more about the witch is your secret power that you're going to get when you're a teen which I think goes back to the same idea about female bodies and female reproductive changes that happen during puberty. Which, as you say, is tied not just to female social power, but also female sexual power, also female cultural sorts of power dynamics, which is why for me, a film like The Craft, which was not a critical success, but has become sort of a cult classic, particularly for people my age, people who were the same age as the characters when the film came out. That film sort of encompasses all of those different dimensions that we're talking about. Right. It has the one character who gets the witch powers and then becomes sort of sexually charged. It has the one whose power manifests destructively. It has the one whose power is vengeful. It has the one whose power is healing. So it's got all of these themes that it's playing with simultaneously. Each of the girls kind of have their own cultural struggle before the start of the narrative. And I'm going to forget their names because I'm a terrible scholar. Nancy, I remember, she has this very tortured family background, very lower class. She lives in a trailer. Nancy is the Feruza Balk character. Yeah. Her parents are just garbage, abusive, negligent, neglectful. And then you have the one girl who's subject to a lot of racism. That's Rachel True. That's Rochelle. Yeah. And she gets vengeance against the racist girl in her swim class. Played by Christine Taylor. Christine Taylor's been in a whole bunch of stuff. But for me, she will always be the girl from Hey Dude. I'm going to nerd on this movie because this movie is (laughs) all the things. Right. And then, gosh, the one with the skin condition. That is Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell. From Scream and Party of Five. Her name was Bonnie. Bonnie, that's right, yeah. And then you have our main character, whose name was... Sarah. Sarah. And that was Robin Tunney, who was really big for a very short period of time and then sort of flamed out. I remember her being in everything in the night. She was in Empire Records. And right. she, well, I think she started in Encino Man. I think Encino Man was her first movie. I know she was in Empire Records. And then she was in The Craft. And then after that, not a whole lot of stuff. Right. And then she just disappeared. She just sort of disappeared. But she had, at the start of the story, survived multiple suicide attempts. So, you know, all of these girls have these things that cost them cultural capital, that cause them torment, these things that would be normally out of someone's control. You know, your class or your race, your mental health, how you look, 
all of those things are struggles that would be out of completely out of someone's control. And through magic, they get control over those things and get their vengeance and get what they want in several different ways. So it is a story about what normal teens go through. But it's sort of a teenage girl power fantasy of what if you could change everything about yourself that you don't like? And what if you could get revenge over the meanest girl in your class? And what if you could make every boy fear you? (laughs) And it, it very much is like a teen power fantasy. And it's a very specific kind of feminist narrative in that way, I think. It is. I mean, yes, it's also this lecture about karma. Right. About everything you put bad into the world is going to come back to you, which is a little bit of a mess, to be quite honest. <laughs> the end. The ending of the film is, is a hot mess. But at the same time, I think it appealed to my generation of film goers. Number one, because of what you're saying, because it was so relatable, particularly to the girls who were coming into their own in the late 90s. Film comes out in 1996. So if you were in high school in the 90s, it probably resonated with you in some way. And I'm a lot younger than that. And yet, my generation, we all watched The Craft and loved it and related to it. It had some lasting cultural impact as sort of a cult classic. And the things that we always remember about The Craft is how awesome they all were and not right. <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> what the narrative intended, which is you shouldn't take advantage of the power this way. And that is not what girls in my generation took from it, I gotta say. (laughs) The fact that the film is low-key sexually charged. Mm -hmm. It's not a sexual film. There's not a whole lot of making out and sex acts in it for a teenage movie. Lots of teenage movies were doing lots more stuff. Yeah. But there's this interesting undercurrent of sexuality that I think is worth exploring in connection to this idea of girls coming into their own power. When I think about sex and the craft, I think about the rapist who gets pushed out a window. Skeet Ulrich, who gets tossed out a window. Which is, so it's not a sexy film, but it is a film about sex. And there's the scene where Bonnie's scars go away. Yes. And then the next day she shows up at school for the first time in like a mini skirt and a halter top kind of a getup. And everybody's like, oh, wow, look at you, blah, blah, blah. But again, I think that's less about sex and more about sexiness, which we could spend an entire show diverging those two things. Well, because what happens when Bonnie is hot all of a sudden is that she gets all kinds of cultural capital in the school. You know, she becomes popular. She gets positive attention. Which she's never had. Yeah, and not exclusively positive male attraction either. Right. She's never had that attention, and it turns her into this raging narcissist. Right. Which is the karmic part of that, right? Don't wish to be the prettiest girl in school, or it'll turn you into a bitch. Right. There's this negativity that is... Because each one of them is supposed to receive their sort of karmic backlash... Yeah. From the thing that they've wished for. She wishes to not have scars anymore, and then it turns her into a raging narcissist. There's 
some problematic elements to that particular narrative. Right. The way, yeah, the way that it's handled, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about what we took away from it as opposed to what it says. It's not very kind to the plights of these teenage girls. It's basically a story about if you take the, the karmic retribution thing to its logical conclusion, it's like you need to take your lot in life and deal with it. And trying to reclaim your power over an unjust system is not the way things are done here. <laughs> And you will pay for it. It will come back to bite you. Right. You will end up in a straitjacket in a mental institution. And Sarah, what does Sarah do at the end? Because she's the one who supposedly does it right and she gets the good ending. Sarah has no backlash. Sarah gets to keep the power. She gets to scare Bonnie and Rochelle, right? She, at the end of the movie... All of Bonnie's scars are back. All Rochelle's hair falls out. Right. She scares them and she binds Nancy. I bind you, Nancy. Bind you from doing harm to others and harm to yourself. She binds Nancy so Nancy can't do anything. Nancy ends up in the in the mental institution. Right. And Sarah ends up just having a normal teenage existence. And the one time at the very end of the movie where Bonnie and... Rochelle see her, she's loading groceries into the car, remember? Yeah. They're like, hey, maybe we could do a spell. And then she gets all the the wind machine hair flying up. I'm going to put a spell on you, power. And they run away. And she gets to keep that power. And there's sort of this implication that she was the one doing it right. Yes. She was the one who, who did the right thing. So she wins and she gets to keep her power as long as she doesn't use it improperly. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, that makes sense. It's like a strict reading of that narrative. That's a narrative we get a lot, which is like, be humble and don't try to get revenge on people and be nice. But I think when you look at the context of the film and what these girls were going through and why they sought that power and why they sought to upset the entire unjust system that was ruling their lives, they get punished for it, which I think is, in retrospect, not that nice of a a story to be telling young people. But as fans often do, I think we just kind of took whatever interpretation we wanted for ourselves and left the rest at home. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the basic way we deal with a lot of these narratives, a couple of which I want to talk about here in a second, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Charmed. But there's one more film I want to deal with, which we will do in two and two. I have a little bit of exciting news for you. Medium, the magazine website, just named the Deconstruction Workers podcast as one of the eight best podcasts you've never listened to. We're very excited and humbled by this award and wanted to let you know that that was going on. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing right now, why don't you tell a friend? Why don't you tell two friends? Help them subscribe. You help us change this from the best podcast you've never heard to the best podcast everyone is listening to, and we'll keep putting out the best content that we can. And we're back. So we were talking about The Craft, one of the 90s great witch movies. The other 90s witch movie wasn't popular at the time when it came out in 1998, but has also sort of taken on this cult status, is the film Practical Magic. Oh, I love Practical Magic. (laughs) I also love Practical Magic. 
for those of you who have not seen Practical Magic, it is an all-star cast of the late 90s. It's Sandra Bullock right in her peak stardom. Nicole Kidman, Stalker Channing is in that, Diane Weist is in that, Aiden Quinn is in that. It has a fairly spectacular cast. It is based on a novel, an Alice Hoffman novel, and it gets kind of a bad rap because it pushes so far in the other direction of the craft. Yeah. So the craft is all about this teenage witchcraft I'm going to get my power and I'm going to use it, blah, blah, blah. The other side of that hammer is Practical Magic, which is about love potions. Her entire quest in the movie is to find a good husband and there's some negativity that gets attached to that, both internally to the text and externally as critique of the text. That said, it still has all of the same witch tropes as every other witch film. Yeah. It's got revenge. It's got magic as a metaphor for sexual power. It's got a really great dichotomy between Sandra Bullock's character and Nicole Kidman's character, their sisters. Sandra Bullock is living a very domestic lifestyle with two kids and a a nice husband. And they run around their cute little house and they laugh into the night. It's very montage Yes. <laughs> and Nicole Kidman is at parties. She's lounging by pools. She's making out with hot guys, living completely the opposite lifestyle from her sister at the very beginning. And Nicole Kidman, I'm just going to give like the briefest synopsis so we can get to the, the good stuff. As you're giving the synopsis, the important part of this film is that the Owens women are cursed. Yeah. There's this curse on the family as a whole that any man they fall in love with is going to die. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so they go in two different ways. Sandra Bullock just ignores it. She falls in love anyway. (laughs) Right. And Nicole Kidman decides never to fall in love and ends up just sort of playing the field for a while. They get into pretty serious trouble when Nicole Kidman's boyfriend hits her and she... They kill him. Yeah, they kill him. They straight up kill him. They poison him. They straight up kill him. And then they try to bring him back to life, and then they kill him again. (laughs) Because they do the spell wrong, and it's not supposed to be used for that. Bringing people back to life is never a good idea. We've known this in all magic stories that have ever been told. You're not supposed to bring people back to life. So then a cop comes to investigate his murder, and the whole story is them basically trying to cover up the murder of Nicole Kidman's crappy boyfriend. There's a second half of that story, which is that in the first few minutes of the film, Sandra Bullock's husband dies. Yeah. Because she ignores the curse, she gets married anyway, and he dies. Yeah. And then through the rest of the film, she and the cop who is investigating the murder end up falling in love awkwardly. <laughs> yes. Through this movie. Yeah. And it's this whole story about whether or not they can break the curse of the Owens women. So there's there are two parallel stories going on here. There's a lot, I think, there. It's a lot more of a domesticated version of the witch story, right? There is a lot of manipulation. The girls are whipping up potions and they're burying 
dead body in the backyard and covering him up with a garden, this magical garden to hide his body. They're doing all of this witchcraft to deceive, to get away with something that's bad. But the story puts you on their side, which is a different perspective than we normally get. And they all live happily ever after at the end, which again is very different from the witch narrative that we would typically get. So they're definitely not witches as villains, but they're using all of the same archetypes, all of the same story beats and tropes that we see when witches are villains, which I think is really interesting. But they get away with it because Sandra Bullock is Sandra Bullock. Well, yeah. I mean, who's going to side against Sandra Bullock? Um, right. <laughs> right. There's a reason why she doesn't play villains. Yeah. Even in the proposal where she plays kind of an unpleasant person, we end up liking her. The only villain she's ever really played is as a cartoon villain in Minions. She's the bad guy. And, you know, Leanne Tui in The Blind Side, but that's (laughs) another story for another show. Right. You're not supposed to side against her. You're supposed to feel sorry for Sally because Sally's husband has died and there's this curse. You're actually supposed to, for the first maybe hour and 15 minutes of the film, you're supposed to actively dislike Jillian. Jillian is Nicole Kidman's character. She's the bad kind of witch, and also, by extension, the bad kind of woman. Sandra Bullock is the good kind of witch, and therefore the good kind of woman. I mean, maybe. Jillian was always my favorite growing up, so <laughs> there might be truth to that, but but definitely she does not fit into the domestic lifestyle of their little New England town that they live in. It's very gossipy, and Jillian's, you know, always doing very scandalous things like wearing crop tops. Right. And... I don't know, having red hair, (laughs) which is, again, very scandalous thing to do. So there definitely is this dichotomy of the good and the bad sister. But we're definitely always on their side. We feel very justified in the murder that happens. We're like, yeah, that guy needed to be dead. Let's hope they don't go to prison for this murder. We're never on the cop's side with that. We're like, no, this was a good thing that he died. <laughs> so so all of the stuff that we would normally find repulsive or scary about the witches in this story, we are put on their side in the narrative and we root for them. And I find that especially interesting because I think that it is I mean, it's a 90s attempt, but it is an attempt at a feminist narrative where it's the actions of these women, the manipulations that they do, they are justified and good, actually. So I think there is something to that sort of a progression in the in the archetype. So we've done the craft. We've done practical magic. Yes. Should we turn our attention to the television? I would love that. Especially because 2019 is really, witches are having a moment in 2019. They really are. Witches are suddenly everywhere. There's reboots of old witch shows. Like we got a Sabrina reboot. We got a Charmed reboot. There's witches making appearances in video games. And witchcraft paraphernalia is showing up on everybody's Instagram. It's all over popular culture right now. But the TV shows are really where it's happening. And I have watched every episode of the new Sabrina twice or three times now. I really like it. I'd be happy to talk about some new witch stuff cool so i think it's difficult to talk about what's happening now without talking about the stuff that everything that's happening now is blatantly wholesale stealing from 
Right. So, because like I said, these are reboots that we're getting. There's a wide range. I mean, Sabrina is very good. The Charmed reboot is a monstrosity. So bad. And so there's a range. It's like unwatchably bad. It's unwatchable. (laughs) That is a good word. It is unwatchable. I'm I'm slogging through it because I'm writing my master's thesis about witches and I'm having such a hard time getting through the Charmed reboot. And it's the direct reboot of the 90s Charmed. It's the three sisters and they get magical powers in the middle of their adulthood. You know, it's not like something they've always been. They get it slapped on to them. The Charmed reboot is doing this thing where they're like, okay, we know witches are feminist. So what if we lean super hard into that? And make them the worst kind of obnoxious straw feminists. <laughs> um, right. Where we don't really understand it, but we know the lingo. It's like someone who knows all of the vocabulary but can't speak the language. And it's, oh, it's so painful. <laughs> and it doesn't just do that in terms of feminism. It also does that in terms of race. Oh, yeah. It is the most fakey fake woke show I've ever seen. Yeah, it really is. It's trying so hard to lean into the fact that, oh, they're not just feminists, they're also brown women. But it's clearly written by people who understand neither of those conceptions. Yeah. (laughs) It's written by people who are neither feminist nor really that versed in identity studies. And so it just comes off as gross. Yeah, it's really fakey and bad. It's gross (laughs) all the way around. Yeah. And I think it's, interesting that they were like witches are the narrative to tell this story with when i do something that's fakey woke progressive we're going to do it with witches that makes perfect sense it's frustrating (laughs) it's very frustrating because we don't literally one of them one of them is a grad student in a women's studies department one of them has a phd in like some sort of molecular science or something like that there it's the stem girl and it's the strong-willed feminist girl then the third one is a sorority girl she's the Alyssa milano character right i'm the sorority girl and i'm cute and i don't care about this feminist stuff and it's so terrible it's terrible (laughs) so bad oh man it makes me feel bad because i feel like really it could have been great but it knows that witches are feminist it just doesn't understand why right they're just like here we're just gonna put all of these ingredients into the bowl and now it's a cake no it's not a cake you have to bake it (laughs) there's an additional process that needs to be done here you can't just throw in all of the ingredients and hope that you get a progressive show on the other end because it's really painful So, yeah. (laughs) I mean, there was a part of me that really wanted to slog through and stick with it because the first season of the original Charmed is also a hot mess. It's an Aaron Spelling show. The three main characters have no chemistry whatsoever for the whole first half of the first season. It's got a lot of problematic stuff, but it knew it was an Aaron Spelling show. It became much more than it was ever intended to be. And that's what I think the problem of this new version of Charmed is, is it tries to stand on the shoulders of a giant that didn't start off as a giant. Right, yeah. That show became a good show. It did not start off as a good show. And this show is coming in as though it can immediately cash in all of that capital, and it cannot. Well, and that's, I think, reboot sickness, right? (laughs) 
The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, on the other hand, went completely the different way, where they were doing a reboot of Sabrina. And I haven't read the comics, but I did watch the 90s Sabrina TV show. And it is exactly nothing like the 90s version. It's not a sitcom. It's way dark, way, way dark. It's basically the horror drama. It just went in completely the opposite direction. It was never trying to be a nostalgic reboot of the Sabrina show. It was like, we're going to take Sabrina and we're going to look at her in a completely different way and do totally new stories with her. And Zelda and Hilda only vaguely resemble (laughs) their counterparts in the original. There's just a lot that they updated and changed for it. But this is a part of the Riverdale Sabrina. I expect there to be a hardcore dark version of Josie and the Pussycats any day now. (laughs) That whole Archie universe, they've said, well, this is fun. Let's take all the fun out of it. (laughs) What What happens if we take all of the fun out of these fun stories? Right. And what you get is you get Riverdale and you get the chilling adventures of Sabrina. You get these stories that if you strip away all of the comedy of it, the situations that they're in are actually pretty not okay. If, if Jughead's the way he is, cause his parents beat him, right? Yeah. He's kind of an alcoholic. What, what does that do to the story? If Archie is sleeping with his teacher. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Riverdale was one of those things where when I heard what they were doing, I was, there is no way this isn't an April Fool's joke. This is patently ridiculous. This is the most ridiculous idea that anyone's ever undertaken. And then you watch it. Yeah. With Sabrina, it ended up being actually so much, so much better than I ever could have imagined because they're doing the kinds of stories That really should have been done with Sabrina the whole time. This is what an actual teenage witch would look like. In Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the conflicts are all, oh, I have a test and I didn't study for it. And I want to go out with Harvey, but I have nothing to wear. I have a zit on my face the day before prom. It's all very little issues. But this is the sort of Melissa Joan Hart 3 camera sitcom that she's always been in. Very much that. So when you take it and you put it in a new format and you say, now the witches are worshiping Satan and spoilers for Sabrina, I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it. And then by the end, they actually murder the actual patriarch of their church (laughs) and establish a matriarchal leader to worship. The whole context is completely changed. And Sabrina becomes this character who is, completely obsessed with justice is not always doing the right thing, but is not not even regularly doing the wrong thing and making actual questionable moral decisions that the kind that are really complicated when it comes to issues of social justice. The show's not perfect. There is some race stuff that I have talked about in papers that I've written about the show, but it definitely sets out to accomplish this story of what if you gave a teenage girl power and she decided she was going to use her power to get freedom and have both. And that choice between power and freedom is something that it's a motif that comes up a lot. So it ends up asking a lot of really interesting questions and doing it in this really dark setting. There's still this element of, and I don't know what word I want to use, there's still this element of 
unrealism to it, to that story, to that narrative, that I think most of these witch stories end up having. Which I feel like the witch story in, interestingly enough, I feel like the witch story in Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Willow and Tara, they sort of make a conscious effort to try to avoid that, which is weird because it's the most unrealistic of the stories, and yet the characters have more of a normality about them than any witch character in other kinds of narratives that are less fantastical, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think that it might have to do with the way that Joss Whedon writes, because as you were saying that, I was thinking, okay, well, in Teenage Witch Sabrina, it's because they're all doing jokey sitcom, pause for applause sort of stuff. And in Chilling Adventures Sabrina, it's because they're all doing moody, dark, I'm going to say something dramatic sort of stuff, which takes a lot of the realism out of it. And in Charmed, they're trying to explain too much. Yeah. In the original Charmed, everything they do, there's an explanation for why they're doing what they're doing and what they're... Nobody talks like that. Then I'm going to get this so that this will happen. And I'm going to Eye of Newt because the Newt represents... And it's like... (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But Willow never really explains what she's doing, but we see her shopping and we see her grinding stuff up in a mortar and pestle and we see her lighting candles and then she just does what she does. And, you know, we don't need any other explanation because it's magic. How are you going to explain magic? There's really no point to doing that. (laughs) Well, and part of it is Alison Hannigan is magnificent. Yes, <laughs> she is. she's terrific. In a way that other actresses portraying other kinds of witches are not. Not that they're bad, they're just not her. Yeah. So it's the combination of the writing and the acting, I think, that, I don't know, like I said, I think it normalizes a lot of what's happening. It looks very natural, I would say. It looks and feels very natural. There is some amazing stuff that they do with Willow. Because if you remember, Willow wasn't always a witch on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We no, she was not. In the early seasons, she was the tech nerd. She was the, I'm going to hack into the mainframe girl. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you know the one. The one girlfriend you have who can hack the school computer? Exactly. That's Willow. And she gets interested in witchcraft as part of, it kind of develops out of her being a Scooby and having to do occasional spells for Buffy to fight evil. But I think what's really amazing about what they do with magic, especially when Tara comes on the scene, is, okay, so this was, gosh, it would have been 2001, 2002, season four. Help me out. I want to say the show starts in 97. That sounds right. So season four would be 2000, probably. Right. So right around then, they're developing the relationship between Willow and Tara. Willow meets Tara at school. They start doing magic together, and they start developing a romantic relationship. But at the time, the network was very strict about these two characters can't kiss these two characters cannot have sex on screen. That's not going to happen because they were both women. The hypocrisy is abundant because Buffy and Riley were getting it on a 
quarterly basis on the show at the time. Almost every episode, really. Nearly every episode. Spike and Drusilla were getting it on. Everybody was getting it on. But Willow and Tara, not allowed. They couldn't even kiss. And so what they do is they use the magic to create one of the most erotic scenes in the entire series as a metaphor for Tara and Willow having sex for the first time to the point where, and I can't remember what the spell was for, what episode it's in, but at one point they both fall back on their backs and they're all sweaty And then this ring of fire in the shape of an O floats up from their bodies. And it it could not be more clear that this is an orgasm. Magic means lesbian sex. Not just in this scene, but the entire time their relationship is developing, they're doing it through magic. And so it has this very specific feminine sexual energy that these two young women who are falling in love we're forming a romantic relationship or doing it through magic. And that because magic is so gendered and so feminized, I don't know that it would work with a heterosexual pairing. I don't think it would work with two men either. So I, I think that there's something really interesting in that we have this idea in our heads that magic and especially witchcraft is very feminine to the point where it can symbolize lesbian sex on a show that was absolutely not going to let them have lesbian sex on screen. So I think that's just really interesting the way that they got away with that. And I'm very proud of them. They were like, no, we're having our lesbians and they're going to get it on. This is happening. However, we need to make it happen. (laughs) So so we end up getting this very erotic scene. So the landscape around witches in popular culture is pretty wide it encompasses a whole bunch of different kinds of things so you know at the end of the day witches in popular culture so what if i was going to say so what i'm going to say that witches in popular culture provide a really special insight into the way that we view femininity and women's bodies and when i say women's bodies i mean a very specific cisgender very limited view of what a woman's body looks like but it definitely is about woman's sexual power and that can be either used for good in a feminist text or for evil in a patriarchal text where quite literally the thing about the witch that is scary is that she is a woman she has a sexual bodily power so that's kind of what it comes down to for me yeah i would say the witch trope is an attempt to understand female power particularly for boys and men who don't experience power in the same way yeah so it's a popular culture shorthand for Here's what's going on with your sister. Here's what's going on with your girlfriend. Here's what's going on with your wife. (laughs) Where men can look at it and say, oh, I get it. These are the ways in which female power are manifesting. I can see that cognitively. But I also think that there's a reason why the witch is almost always the villain. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) So while I can see that cognitively, I think it manifests itself in some really ugly ways. Yeah, it does. But it can I think it can be used very effectively in feminist texts as long as there is a respect for the history and a respect for why they have traditionally been villains. Like if you can see that and understand it, 
you can use that as a weapon against against the patriarchy. What I right. would like to see is some more inclusive witch narrative. Basically, I want to see some trans witches. We never get trans witches, and I would I would love to see that. We didn't even really talk about black witches. We might have to do that on a separate episode because that's a whole other. It's a whole new trope. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation that goes yes. to Jezebel and all kinds of stuff. And the history of voodoo and Tichuba and that whole, we've got a whole nother. That's a whole different show. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so maybe we'll come back and revisit the witch thing in a, in a later episode. As we've done several episodes about Harry Potter, several Star Wars episodes, maybe witches will become another one of our themes. Maybe we'll bring it back around around Halloween anyway. I would love that. <laughs> so for Marley Williford, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you for listening. Thanks for hanging in with us on season three. We've got a lot of really great and exciting stuff still coming up this season, so stick around. Thanks for hanging out with me, Marley. Oh, anytime. It was a lot of fun. The Deconstruction Workers Podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.